Okay, this morning the topic we're going to cover is one I'm extremely passionate about because it makes such a huge difference in your life. We're going to, to be talking about your sex life and your romance life. This has the potential to be one of the most pleasurable aspects of your life and it also has the potential to be one of the most devastating, destructive powers in your life. I want you to think forward 20 years. You guys are between the ages of 15 and 18, right? 14 to 18, roughly. Okay, 20 years from now, what does that make you? 34 to 48. 34 to 38. Daniel taught me my math. <laughs> You're about 23,000 years old then. <laughs> Seriously, 34 to 38, what kind of marriage will you have? Will coming, be coming home something you look forward to? Is it going to be a source of comfort for you? A place where you feel fulfilled? Or is it going to be a place of absolute misery? Where you cringe to be alone with your spouse? Where you fight all the time? Where you've been through the pain of divorce? The choices you make between now and then will go a long way to determining what type of marriage you have. Scientifically, I get that the majority of you teenagers, it's apparently a, it's not until you turn 25 that the part of your brain that really grasps the whole concept of consequences develops, which is why there are so many battles between parents and teenagers because parents have a fully developed brain when it comes to being able to grasp consequences. Teenagers do not. Teenagers are like the toddler who's been told, do not stick your iPad in the toilet, it won't work. But the toddler insists on putting the iPad in the toilet and then throws a hissy fit when it doesn't work. That's not how life's supposed to work. You're supposed to be able to do whatever you want with your iPad, it's supposed to be able to work, right? That's how teenagers view life. They're supposed to be able to live any way they want. They're supposed to buy this world's message that this is your body. This is, you do what's best for you. You do what makes you happy. And God's supposed to continue to bless them. And life's supposed to run as smoothly. But it doesn't work that way. Consequen your actions have consequences. There are some actions that cannot be undone. This is why God gives us rules. We talked about this before. His rules are not given to us so that we can earn salvation. They're not given to us so that we can earn our way into fellowship with God or cancel out the good deeds in our life. His rules are empowering. His rules are for our freedom. Just to give you an example of how this works, I'm going to use another sports car analogy. Maybe this is because I've been driving a minivan for eight years. <laughs> A minivan. <laughs> so, uh, you get a sports car. Hopefully some of you actually get a sports car someday. But your parents are going to give you some very restrictive rules. This has a gasoline engine. You're restricted to put gasoline in the engine. You're supposed to mundane things. Make sure your tires are topped up. Make sure you follow the rules, the speed limits. Now you say, this is my sports car, I can do whatever I want with it. If you say, 
My parents are old-fashioned. I'm going to put diesel in the engine. What kind of power are you going to have on diesel? It's hardly going to run. You're not going to have the same freedom. See, the restrictions of gasoline in a gasoline engine are not to prevent you from having fun. They're to the empower the vehicle to run as it's supposed to. Let's say you say, you know, I think it would be really cool to just take off the rubbers completely. You take that sports car out on the highway without rubbers, don't expect it to run the same way or as fast as the vehicle with tires that are properly inflated. Some people say, this is, I think what would be so cool to do with the sports car is to hang it up in a tree and have the world's coolest tree house. Well, that might be fun, but you are nowhere near enjoying the maximum potential of what that sports car could bring you, hanging it up in the tree. God has given us, he's made us sexual beings, he's given us a gift of romantic relationships, and we have a culture that is doing the equivalent of hanging this up in the tree, taking the rubbers off, bringing it to a level that is so much less than God designed it to be. And not only are we missing out on the potential, what meant to be such a good, satisfying thing has become such a destructive thing. So I hope I've established this concept that rules, when they're given to you by a loving person, are empowering. They're not burdens. They're not so you earn salvation. They're the designer's instructions manual. Brian, can we look at some of those scriptures? These are God's rules for romance. First rule is not up here, but the, please take notes and cabin leaders, if you could go over these, that would be great. Some people say, well, God doesn't, God's word doesn't say anything on dating, so I'm free to date however I want. You know what happened in the 1800s? In the South, there was a terrible practice of slavery. They actually felt that blacks were subhuman, that they were just highly developed animals. So they put them through tremendous misery, packing them so tightly into ships that most of, a lot of them died on the passage because they couldn't breathe, they couldn't, didn't get clean air, proper nutrition. Slaveholders said, when people said, release your slaves, they said, there's not a single verse that says we need to get rid of our slaves. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's actually laws about slavery. So they read their Bible in a superficial way and they felt completely justified in their choices. Meanwhile, millions of blacks were, were, living, were reaping the consequences of this poor reading of scripture. And today we have a lot of Christians who say the Bible doesn't say anything about dating and millions of Christians are suffering the consequences of the superficial reading of dating. Reading of the Bible, what the Bible has to say about dating. Abolitionists in the North looked at the whole of Scripture, and even though Scripture does not specifically prohibit slavery, there's some scriptural concepts that made that, made that particular type of slavery clearly unbiblical. Principles like, God is the creator of all men. All men are created equal. In Job, he says, 
The same God who made me made my servants. I must treat them well because of that. Paul said that slaves are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said, however you treat the least of these, you're treating me. All of those concepts, when you applied those to the slavery issue, made it very different that slavery is clearly unbiblical. So in the same way, even though the Bible doesn't specifically talk about dating, it does say a lot about sex and true love. And I would like to apply those principles and then see what kind of a biblical philosophy of dating, if you read the whole of Scripture, we can find. So the first principle is that in the Garden of Eden, God made, when He made the first marriage, what did it include? Was it one man and one man? Was it two women? Was it one man and multiple women? Was it a man and a goat? It was one man and one woman. This is God's design. Previous kids that I have, when I've been to previous camps, I didn't really address the whole issue of homosexual attraction because I thought Christian camp is so obvious. I've been sad to see different campers that have followed put rainbows over their profile picture. That is how pervasive the lies in our culture are about you were born with this desire, God wouldn't ask you to go against the desire you were born with. <laughs> Seriously? Jesus said that we are born with desires to fornicate, to steal, to slander, to be gluttons, to be destructive. We are born with destructive desires. It's called being fallen. It's called the old man. Our society doesn't say, if you're born with the desire to be a pedophile, do we say, be fruitful and multiply, go enjoy that? If you're born with the desire to rape, do we say, go enjoy that desire? Of course not. Just because you're born with the desire does not mean you have the right to enjoy it. We are all born with false desires. The key is to ask God to give us new desires so that we can be fulfilled. I don't have a whole lot of time, but that's God clearly in His Word. One man and one woman. The second point, if we can look at that next scripture. Yes, we were made to be courageous men in our romance. To be domineering husbands over our wives. No. <laughs> Not really. I'm going to get to that. The next verse, though, is when God made marriage. Jesus said, this is what Jesus, when God became man, this was God's opinion of romantic relationships. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together... Let not man separate. What we see here is that when God brings a man and woman together, it's designed to be permanent. People who go through romantic relationships and divorce, they experience a terrible tearing, a pain that God did not design us to be able to cope with. Because God designed it that once a man and a woman start bonding, 
It's supposed to be for life. I'm going to revisit this later. I'm looking at these eight principles to establish a foundation so that as I argue for biblical purity, I want you to realize this isn't just my opinion. This is based on God's authority. Let's look at the next verse. So the first principle, God made one man and one woman. The second principle is God designed marriage to be permanent. The third principle is God commands us to flee sexual immorality. This is Paul to the Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Gnostics were a a group of people, and other religions have had this, but they believed that the good God was spirit and that matter, our bodies, were a corruption. They couldn't see how things like sex could be good. But Paul is saying, our bodies are good. Our hormones, our desires, our drives, they're good things. They're gifts from God. But God wants these bodies to glorify Him. And sexual immorality is one of the highest sins you can commit against the temple of God. It's a very serious thing in God's eyes. Not in the culture's eyes. In fact, in our culture's eyes, it's more sacred to say I love you than it is to sleep with someone. That's how twisted our culture is. We have said this is nothing but another handshake. It's nothing but exchanging fluids. No. God says this is serious, serious, sacred stuff. Let's look at the next verse. This is also the same in the same category. The writer of Hebrews says, Let marriage be held in honor and all, and let the bed be undefiled. God blesses the marriage bed. But God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Other translations say fornicators and adulterers. Fornication is sex with someone you're not married to before you're married. And adultery is sex with someone you're not married to after you're married. Scripture says God will judge both of those. This is not Old Testament ceremonial law. This is New Testament God of love. It says we'll judge the sexually immoral, the fornicators and the adulterers. Let's look at the next verse. So the fourth principle is that sexual purity is more than just what we do with our bodies. It also includes our thought life. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God doesn't just want physical sexual purity. He wants emotional and mental purity as well. And again, not to be restrictive and to prevent us from having fun, but because He honestly loves us and wants to empower us. Let's look at the next verse. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that each of you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. Other translation says that no one, where it says transgress and wrong his brother, another word that it uses is should not defraud his brother or sister in this area. Who knows what defrauding means? 
I often hold up a $20 bill at this time and say, I've got a $20 bill to whoever tells me, gives me the definition of defrauding. The person who gets it comes up and I don't give it to them. It's because I wanted to make it stick in their minds. I was defrauding them. I was promising something and not fulfilling it. This has huge implications for our romantic life. When we stir up desires in the person we are with that we have no intention of actually fulfilling. When we start taking a young woman's heart when we have no intention of protecting that heart for the rest of our life. That's defrauding. Let those last words, again this is New Testament, let these be a sober reminder. The Lord is the avenger in all these things. Guys, take that verse seriously. If you are going around defrauding young women, Almighty God in heaven is the avenger of those who mess with his precious daughter's hearts. Defrauding. That's an important concept. This is the biblical foundation for it when I talk to it. Let's look at the next principle. So that, that whole category is the Bible warns very strong against defrauding in this area. And this is just a continuation of these verses. For God has not called us to impurity but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is where I want you to focus because you will completely disagree with me. But remember, when you violate God's principles, you're not just regarding my opinion or Brian's opinion or your parents' opinion. You're disregarding your Creator and it's going to be do great peril to, bring great peril to your soul. Let's look at the next verse. This is the... I think we're on the sixth principle. That we are to love, guys, we are to love our spouses like Christ loved the church. This is a high standard. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I think there's... For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I wasn't making it up. When we talk about sex and romance being a picture of the type of relationship God has with, wants with us, this is what Paul says, the two shall become one flesh, it's a profound mystery, and he says it refers to Christ and the church. Christ wants to become one with us. Steve, in our chapel devotions, has been hammering home this concept of Christ our life. The gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. It's not just forgiveness of sins. It's a divine union where Christ becomes one with us and empowers us. It's, put, it's an exchange life. We put on his righteousness, but we also receive his power to live day to day. It's a profound union. And this is our example for marriage. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and, see that the, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Can move on to the next. The seventh biblical concept that should govern our romance is that all of our relationships are to be 
governed by the law of agape love. Agape love is God's love for us. It's the highest form of love. It's not just erotic love, romance love. It's not just brotherly affection. It's love that lays down its life. It's love that's only able to be given if you are empowered by God. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, or in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Other translation says, have the mind of Christ. Follow his example of laying down his life. All of these concepts I'm talking about, I, when, when I talk about purity here, I want to make so clear, I am not just adding rules or burdens to you. I want this all to be motivated and empowered by genuine love. This is the reason we do things like modesty and guarding our eyes and avoiding pornography. It's not works of righteousness so that God loves us. It's because so that God will love us. It's because God loves us and he wants us to love others. Jesus said loving God, loving others sums up all the law and the prophets. This is at the root of all these rules. I want to keep hammering this home. These are not just burdens I want God's putting on you. He wants to empower you. He wants to make you, your lives, fulfilled. Talked about it this morning. Relationships are at the heart of life. They're the meaning of life. Because even before God, any part of matter was created, we had the Holy Trinity enjoying relationship, love-giving, joy-filled relationship. God made us to be in relationship with Him, with each other. You see this, even though our culture says it's what you own, it's what you achieve, that's where meaning is found. God says it's all about the quality of your relationships. It's so opposite to what Satan lies about us. At the end of your life, you will always be most happy if your relationships are going well. If you are in good relationship with God and with other people, you will find meaning, fulfillment, you're reflecting what God made you to be. If your relationships are poor, it won't matter how much fame or money or material goods or achievements, you will be empty. Christianity, when we follow agape love, this is the secret to all good relationships, non-romantic and romantic. And I think that's the last verse I have, but the eighth biblical principle is that God loves the idea of your sexuality. For a lot of church history, it was sex is bad. Some theologians even said that when at the eating the apple was a metaphor for when Adam and Eve caused us to fall by having sex. But God said that they were naked and unashamed. Sex is beautiful, holy, and sacred. It's a good thing. It's to be delighted in. It's not something to feel guilty about or dirty. Satan loves to associate it with dirtiness. And so that even people who've tried to keep themselves pure, they expect it to be wonderful in marriage, but they get to marriage realizing they have so conditioned themselves to think that sex is dirty and something bad that they can't enjoy it because they feel guilty. But it's holy and sacred. And Song of Solomon is God's unabashed, unashamed stamp of approval 
on the gift that he created. So those are the eight biblical principles. I hope you guys got some notes to write those down to review those. Okay. We're going to have to move quickly here. We've talked about this gift having rules that empower us. We just looked at these rules, what they are. I want to go through these now. First thing I want to focus on is God designed romance to be exclusive. This is the fuel that makes the sports car of romance purr like a kitten and gives it unbelievable power is when there's one man and one woman saving their bodies for each other, saving their minds for each other, saving their hands for each other, saving their eyes for each other, saving their love notes, their affection. They save it all for each other and they're on fire for each other, enjoying a holy passion. Now as soon as you bring a third party into romance, the engine starts to sputter. Insecurity comes in, you start to feel compared with this other person. As soon as uh, a wife suspects that there's a third woman or another woman in their relationship, she starts wondering, does my husband, does this, my lover see me as, as attractive as this woman? You start feeling compared to other women, you start feeling insecure. It just, all these things sabotage the relationship. Even in today's free sex culture, there's a pretty high expectation that when you're in a romantic relationship with a person, there's an expectation that you should be only giving your romance to this one person. So our culture's sexual ethic is one person at a time. God's rule for us is one person for life. When you are romantic with someone. What you do becomes a part of who you are. Some actions can't be undone. When you have sex with someone, that becomes a part of who you are. It's an action that can't be changed. When you kiss someone, it's as if you, that, that, that kiss is imprinted on your memory, it becomes part of who you are. When you're in a romantic relationship with someone, you start to bond. I want to look at, make a distinction here between, when we talk about love, there's the love as commitment, which is the choice to love, and there's love as feeling, which is the romantic fires and infatuation. Our culture blurs these, we use love and we pour all kinds of different meanings into the word. A couple gets a divorce and says it's because we no longer loved each other. The most important type of love that God calls us to as a Christian is the choice to love. And this doesn't, when you say on your wedding day that you vow to love your wife till the day you die, you're not saying, I vow to be infatuated with you for the rest of my life. I vow to always be madly in love with you feelings wise. No, it's I vow to choose to love you even when the feelings are not there. I choose to put your needs ahead of my own. This feeling side of love can be pictured in two ways. The first way is a superglue. Remember how Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate? God actually designed it. And this is something we've only discovered recently in neuroscience, although philosophers and people who listen to their experience and 
wise guys have known this for a long time, that when you fall in love with someone, you start bonding to that person. It's like a powerful super glue. When you start kissing, when you start holding hands, when you start sharing the deepest parts of you, when you start spending a lot of time alone, there's a form of bonding that happens there. Now, neuroscience is showing that you actually start producing hormones that you become addicted to that person. Now, this is such a wonderful gift. When this whole sexual attraction and arousal that happens with that one person, you become addicted to this person. This person becomes your type. It's a gift to those who are married. You never are bored with your spouse because you are addicted to that person. But this is where Satan has brought cultural breakdown. When you, the first time you fall in love and become romantic and start gluing yourself to someone, it's a very strong bond. But then when you break up and you start becoming sexually active with another person, your brain's wiring goes, whoa, what just happened here? And it actually messes up the ability to be addicted to that person so that the next time that addiction is not quite as strong. Another way to picture this is sticky tape. The first time you put two pieces, virgin pieces of tape together, it's very hard to pull them apart. But if you take that tape, put it to the rug, put it to the ceiling, put it to the other floors, you put those pieces of tape together and they, they don't, aren't as sticky. Partly because when you fall in love with someone, your heart bonds to that person. And when you tear, you have all the memories, you bleed. This is a pain God did not intend you to have. And a callus starts to form on your heart. And the next time you enter love, you are a little more cautious, a little more hesitant to really open up and give yourself away. And if you've had multiple partners before the time you even get married, it's very hard to open up and experience that kind of trust and intimacy. Scripture also refers to love as a fire. In the Song of Solomon, it says, love is a consuming fire. And the woman begs her other friends, do not arouse or awaken love until the proper time. Fire, pioneers used to say, fire is a wonderful servant, but a terribly cruel master. It's very graphic if you've ever seen a house destroyed by flames. Fire in the fireplace is a wonderful thing. It keeps you warm, it cooks, it can power things. Fire outside the fireplace is terrifying. Romantic love is like a fire in the sense that the more it's fed, the more the flames are fanned, it becomes a controlling, consuming zeal and passion. Infatuation blinds the eyes, it sets off hormones, it enters unreality. God designed this in marriage when two fallen people get together. We need some infatuation because we are not always beautiful, we are not always wonderful, 
God gives us the ability to fan the flames of infatuation so that we see the other person that we're committed to for life in an idealistic way where we feel so in love with that person and where it's God's grace to us that we look at this person through eyes of grace where we don't see all their flaws. In marriage, infatuation and stirring up those desires of romance are such a gift. But outside of marriage, outside of that commitment, this fire of infatuation can burst into flames and people will throw away their convictions, their jobs, their morals, their ethics, their relationship with God, all because they are so madly in love with this person. And infatuation is often, the worldly infatuation is often based on really twisted things. One thing I will never get is why women seem to naturally find the bad boy image sexy and turn on. Why they find a man who's got an edge of danger so attractive. That is such a strong proof to me of the enemy's twisting girls' minds. Because that man who's got the edge, who's got the dangerous side, who turns you on, is the last person on the planet you want to be giving your body, your heart to. You want to be giving your heart to a safe person. But I don't know why women find the dangerous man attractive. It makes no sense to me. But what does make sense is that there's an evil power behind it and the women who find themselves attracted end up in a cycle of giving themselves to abusive men. It's terrible. Infatuation should not be your God. It should not be your driving force. You've got to do it. Put it inside the fireplace of choice. So, here's where I believe God's instructions, based on all those verses for us, I believe that God's ideal for marriage is that you put the choice to love first and that you do not start gluing yourself to someone through romantic and sexual enjoyment until you know you can until God has made it so clear that you can be glued to this person for life. God says do not start a fire of romantic infatuation until you know there is a divinely sanctioned, where it's got God's certified approval, fireplace to keep the fire in. Does that make sense to you? This is not just an oppressive morality from God. This is God saying, could this be any more obvious to you people? I don't want you gluing yourself to someone that you're going to just have to fall apart from. It's not kind to the person you're loving. It's not kind to your future spouse. It's not kind to their future spouse. Guys, when you start enjoying a woman sexually and emotionally before you are willing to commit to life, you are robbing yourself because you're going to go into your next relationship hurting and calloused. You're stealing from this woman you're stealing from your future spouse and you're stealing from her future spouse. Four people are suffering these consequences, the damage, because you want to live selfishly. It's the complete opposite of the selfless love that God commands us to if we are taking the name of Christ. So how in the world are you supposed to find a spouse? This. Sounds good, it makes sense to a lot of Christians, but they go, okay, that's good, but how do I find the person 
I can choose to marry unless I've enjoyed a romantic relationship with them? How can I know that I want to commit to this person unless I've seen if we're sexually compatible? Because our culture says the only way to f- that our culture says true love is based on chemistry, not choice. Our true our, the only way a marriage works is if you find your soulmate, your other half, where you get together and there is such a strong physical attraction, neither of you can handle it. It's just that strong. When you find that attraction, marry that person because that's the only type of fire that will keep you together for life. So the way you find that in the secular narrative story is you experience a bunch of romantic relationships, you sleep around until you find the person who turns you on like no other. Meanwhile, the very (laughs) way that people are trying to find love is damaging the engine of the sports car. It's damaging, it's preventing them from ever knowing what true romantic love can be like. You know, sexual compatibility, this is a a lie that's even pervaded churches. My sister at some concerts would sing a song called One Man For Me and Christians who were in leadership at the church said, is this waiting for your future spouse your conviction or is it your parents? Because we have seen people who save themselves for marriage and we have just been dealing with so much fallout. God created sexual chemistry and it's so important that Christians are experimenting sexually because God wants them to find someone they're sexually compatible with. This was Christian counselors encouraging them to sleep around to find if there's sexual chemistry. You know what creates sexual chemistry? When there is exclusivity, one man and one woman, when they've got your hormones addicted to that one person, where this person is always your standard of beauty, where you're not bringing a third party in through either previous encounters or pornography, which is one of the most sabotaging fizzlers of sexual intimacy. It's exclusivity, it's trust, it's selflessness. That is what brings sexual chemistry. So the whole world's way of finding it is actually preventing people from ever finding the true sexual chemistry that God wants you to have. And the truth about marriage, it's easy as teenagers, as single people, to think marriage is all about the sex. This is why people never look in the friend zone for their spouse. Because they don't feel any sexual attraction to people in their friend zone. And they say, marriage is about the sex, so the most important quality for me and a spouse is that I be madly sexually attracted to this person. Do you know, if things are going well, the actual sex part of your life will take up about 3% of your marriage. Time-wise, just cold minutes. It's not cold, but it's just the three minutes. The, the, it's not three minutes either. I don't, it's 3% of married life. It's devoted. To, it's a wonderful 3%. 
but it's still 3%. So for the other 97% time-wise, your marriage is based on friendship. Don's been married a long time. He's nodding his head. I've been married for 10 years. The friendship is the, is the meat and soul and the heart of marriage. It's the satisfying part of marriage. Here's the thing. Sex, sexual attraction based on infatuation comes and goes. You cannot create friendship out of a lot of sexual attraction. But God in His wisdom in giving us adaptable sexual desires, which is both a blessing and a curse. It's a curse when you've adapted your sexual desires to twisted things like same-sex attraction or pornography. But it's a blessing when you have let God use your adaptable sexual nature to adapt to your spouse. You marry your best friend and you save all your sexual imaginations and encounters and experiences for that person, your sex drive will grow to become so addicted to that person. Marry not based on sexual attraction because God can create that where there wasn't it before. I know he can. I've seen it happen. I was not sexually attracted to my wife at all. I didn't even really find her attractive. But God, once he brought us together, let me tell you, he built a fire and a desire for her that was so much greater, more enjoyable than I could have ever imagined. Here is what I think biblical dating should look like. Based on all these principles, I have to wrap this up fairly quickly. Tonight, I want to go through the acronym ROMANCE, God's Romance for Singles. Ways you can live your single years in a way that is satisfying, glorifies God, and also prepares you to be the spouse God wants you to be if God has marriage for you. And don't worry, none of the things that I talk about are wasted if God does not have marriage for you. But right now, this is what I believe biblical dating should look like. There should be a time of non-romantic relationships where you are showing all the men and women in your life agape love. Where you are not defrauding them, you are not dressing immodestly, we'll address immodestly tonight, where you're not flirting, you're not playing the game. See, our culture says your worth is based on your sexual attractiveness. So it creates a society of defrauders because you feel like you're nothing until you know someone is falling for you sexually. So girls dress sexually provocative because if guys are lusting after them, they feel like they're, they're something, they're worth something. Guys are drinking protein shakes, working out in the gym, learning to push sexual buttons, learning how to give that little coy touch, look, compliment, the figure. They're all learning how to defraud because they feel like they're nothing until they are seen as sexually attractive. This is exact opposite to what the Bible talks about in do not defrauding because God is the avenger of all those who are defrauding. So you go through life seeking to show love and worth and not worry so much about who finds you sexually attractive but making sure you know that everybody of your brothers and sisters in Christ knows that you love them with a selfless agape love. That you don't just love them because they're worth something sexually to you, but you love them because God loves you and your identity is found in Christ's love. Your worth is found in the actions of Christ and then you can love. That's the first stage of your sing single life. 
The next stage is you think God may be leading you to marry someone. You are interested in this person as more than just a brother or sister in Christ. So you start getting to know this person with intention. However, this stage of life is getting to know someone on a deeper stage, but it's still doing everything you can to not glue to this person romantically, to not stir up the infatuation. Infatuation is the worst time to be evaluating someone anyway, because it blinds the eyes. You want your eyes, Benjamin Franklin said, eyes wide open before marriage, half shut afterwards. It's great advice. Can you get to know someone well enough to commit to them without romantically experimenting with them? I believe you absolutely can because love is based on following God's will for you and it's based on making a wise choice about who this person is. Marriage is not successful because of chemistry. Chemistry comes and goes. Chemistry is created based on trust and basic relationship skills. You want to know if someone's marriage material, do they have a good relationship with other people and do they have a good relationship with their family? That's what makes a good marriage. So you start seeking God together in a non-romantic way. This is not the kind of thing that will ever make it into romantic drama or romantic comedy. But this is what works. You, during this stage of your single life, you are treating everybody around you the way you want your future spouse to be treated. During this exploration stage of a relationship, you are committed to treating each other as if you are not going to get married. And guys, you are planning to treat this woman the way you want guys to be treating your future spouse. So if you want to know what this looks like, you're treating this woman the way you want other guys to be treating your mom. That's, that's the standard. If you think hand, well, holding hands in this stage is fine, well, it might be fun, and I'm not saying it's necessarily sinful. I'm just saying it's starting to glue. It's starting to blind the eyes. Would you want some guy just coming and holding hands with your mom? No, because, you know, mom belongs to your dad. And you, until you know for sure who you belong to, or who belongs to you, you want to treat them as if they belong to someone else. That's, this is stage one of this ideal. Then you get to a point where you go, God has made it clear to me, I'm willing to commit to this person come hell or high water. And I'm willing to commit to a point of no return. I'm willing, I know enough. See, on the day you make your wedding vows, all kinds of things pop up. Things that should not be there. Things you work through. There's no perfect couples. Every couple has to work through things. Every, every couple discovers baggage. But on your wedding day, one month into your honeymoon, you can't go, okay, time to call it off. No, because you had your wedding vows. What I'm suggesting, just the path of wisdom, is that before you start bonding emotionally and romantically, you reach a point where you know that God has blessed this this relationship, you say, we are committing to life. In the Old Testament, it was called the betrothal period because it was like a marriage. In fact, you needed a divorce to break a betrothal. It was an unbreakable time of commitment that was not for exploring each other sexually, but it was a safe time to start gluing to each other romantically.
Then, once you reach this point of engagement, and I don't just mean you feel like you could promise, I'm talking about a, like an engagement that's like a vow. Then you can start bonding emotionally, you can start building the fires, you can start gluing each other to each other. Still saving sex for marriage, because Hebrews is very clear. The marriage bed, the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers receive God's judgment. Okay, I gotta quickly talk about the grace. Because I have laid the hard line here. Grace, Jesus brought truth. He came to testify to the truth. This is the truth about, about sex. There are consequences. If you sleep outside of marriage, there are consequences. I, have, I can't sugarcoat it. There's consequences. You can't just go undo that. But here's where the gospel comes in. Jesus took the damage our sin brings. You look at his bloodied, broken body, that's the consequences of sin. Here's the amazing thing about the gospel. Jesus doesn't just say, I forgive your sins. Christianity does not end with Jesus in the tomb. Christianity comes back, roars to life with the resurrection, where Jesus not only forgives sins, he brings healing to the damage that our sin brings. He takes our sins into himself, lets him be broken by that, but then brings resurrection power, healing. So God can heal whatever you have done, no matter what. I don't know what kind of sexual past you've had, what may have been taken from you by abuse or molesting, or what kind of gluing you've done. There's damage there. I'm not going to sugarcoat it to you. But Christ's power to bring healing there is powerful. He can give you a fresh start. But God is not going to change the design. When that woman caught in adultery was brought before Jesus, Jesus said, whoever's, thrown, whoever's committed no sin, let them throw the first stone. They had all committed sins, they left. Jesus tells this woman, where are your accusers? He said, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. But then he says, go and sin no more. That's truth. God has an amazing ability to heal whatever you've done. He can give you secondary virginity. He can, he, he can give a whole new coat of stickiness to your tape, which is ultimately the only stickiness we truly have is the agape love that holds us together. He can restore what the fires have broken, but he will not change his design. Because his design is still sexual purity must be saved for exclusivity and it must be saved for marriage. I would like you guys to know that in the back there we have a book called Extreme Romance. I'm giving you a bunch of information. The copies here, we brought a few copies down. They're available for $10. Or you can go to our website, purityandtruth.com. You want to write that down, cabin leaders, and give it to them later. Purityandtruth.com. You can download a free ebook of that book to look at. You can read it on an iPad or a, there's actually a way to get it on your Kindle if you're Kindle readers. But if you have questions, I've written a lot of articles on this too. So tonight we're going to look at God's romance for, for singles. But I just really want you guys to realize God loves your sex life, but it's going to have consequences. But He really wants to bless you. His heart is so good, His rules are for your pleasure.